Happy New Year, Master Music listeners! I hope you had a great start on your 2019. If not, here is your chance to turn it around with an amazing interview with Dr. Ine van Overen, doctor in contemporary flute playing. This unusual flutist has dedicated her life to the modern art. Except for being a doctor in flute, she's also an assistant professor at contemporary flute in the Conservatoire Royal de Liège in Belgium. She's also an artistic researcher at the Conservatoire Antwerp, and she has a shared research group who is called Creason in the Royal Conservatoire in Antwerp. In this episode, she shares her new book with us, which is a book written to explain the mysteries of modern music. It is called Tomorrow's Music in Practice Today, and Ine shares her methods of mastering modern music. She tells us about her projects, experiments are more refreshing than socks. She also tells us how she, during her studies in California, made a performance based on a man who accidentally shot himself, which in real life was her friend's best friend. We talk politics and life and death and, of course, a lot about music. Before we start, I want to thank our partners, the student radio Maastricht and our Swedish cellist. I also want to share a concert service that is called Takeaway Concerts. It is a service that I created with my company, a Swedish cellist, and is developed like this. Imagine sitting in your home, having a small party or dinner, and suddenly a musician knocks on the door and comes and plays a short concert for you and your friends. It is affordable, accessible live music right to your doorstep. Pretty great. You can book your concert now at www.swedishcellist.com. Now I want to start by inviting Ine van Overen to your ear and the piece Vermont Counterpoint by Steve Rage. Thank you. 
Welcome to Master Music in Van Overen. Thank you for having me. How are you? Good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Also, I'm having like so. I'm so excited. I'm in the inner world because I've been like <laughs> researching a little bit about you, and I'm like I'm really excited. But I think you are such a cool girl or woman. You're not a girl yeah, anymore. Yeah, woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're born the same year as my sister. So I was like, oh, 
an 86er. I'm an 80, yeah, an 80s girl. Yeah, and I mean, you are so young and you achieved so much. Like, wow. Yeah, well, um, yeah, well, some people tell me that. <laughs> I don't always realize that because you're just in the flow of hopefully um, getting some money to live and sometimes things work out. And yeah, I guess so. It's been quite rich already so i'm grateful for that so do you have any tips for uh, like achieving a lot of things in early years yes be difficult yeah. <laughs> people always told me that i had a very particular or difficult character what well, was never on purpose of course but i think that kind of shapes your personality in in always wanting more whenever i i i was studying I was looking forward to when it was finished and when it was finished like no it's not good enough I need to have that and then it will be good and then I had that dream of going to America and having a doctorate and while doing it you think like yeah it's not that difficult and I think this is continuing in my life like never being satisfied and I think that is like the, the real quest or the trajectory of, of achieving goals so I really want to achieve way more goals still. <laughs> Of course, of course. And um, you studied in California? I did, I did. And how, how was it? It's yeah. far away, yeah? Yeah, it was, it was really amazing. Um, I had a sort of an American dream while I was still in Europe because I was really captivated by the contemporary music scene happening in, in the US. I, I had this crazy idea of really doing a doctorate in American music. And then you get towards, yeah, for example, towards the, the minimal music. And then when I arrived in the US, no one was playing that kind of music. And I got a bunch of other influences that I had never heard of. So people there really shaped me. And then I ended up actually researching and playing a European guy again. Uh, but still, the, the experience over there was was so, so, so enriching. It's, it's completely different than Europe. And it was in Idaho, huh? No, it was in California. In California. Yeah, in San Diego. In San Diego, so really Diego the, sorry. The south of California. Where did I get Idaho from? Maybe the, <laughs> the same vowels as in San Diego. <laughs> My geography is not that good. <laughs> no, it's more towards the west, completely well, towards the west. Well, at least I got the continent right. <laughs> but it's like a special uh, conservatory who is a little bit like focusing on more the music that you went yeah. to. Yeah, so the, the music department is part of a university over there, what is also very different compared to Europe. You notice that in, in the coursework, for example. But the music department there is actually solely focusing on contemporary music. So there are four departments, performance department, composition department, electronic music department, and then there was, it was called integrative studies, what is actually kind of a mix between musicology and still performing arts, um, what was really interesting, but everything focused on contemporary music. It's like the Walhalla of contemporary music. Yeah, I love that you say the Walhalla. I'm like, yeah, because people say I'm like heaven, but you say like Walhalla, like really for mythology, like yeah. in the north. Like I, I'm Swedish, so for me it's, it's like, true. of course it's Walhalla, you know, and of course it's like, I'm a Valkyria, you know, it's not a, a another goddess, like you really yeah. take the, the yeah. raw, the raw uh, symbolic, I really like that. So Walhalla, you were there for two years? Yes, yeah. So I lived there constantly for 
two years and then my studies weren't finished yet but I came back to kind of yeah to be in touch with the scene here as well because you're easily forgotten and everyone also experiences some sort of a yeah a black hole after graduating yeah and I, I wanted to avoid that so so making a transition towards the professional musician and working musician while I was still studying and then was it expensive to study over there? Yeah, well, without any scholarship, it wouldn't have been possible. Okay. For for n not for an, a normal family. So the tuition yearly is about thirty thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and that's without living there. Yeah. Um. So I was I was fortunate enough to have a, a scholarship of BAF. That is the um, Belgian American Educational Foundation. It's it's a private um, organization and um, so for my first year I was covered and then my other years I was covered by the university itself also with a with a scholarship and luckily because otherwise so what do you have to do to get this kind of scholarship in Berlin? a lot <laughs> I was surprised by it um, a, a lot of tests and interviews and auditions so the normal stuff for musicians is an audition and an interview but also to study at a university and to get a degree in graduate school, so that is a master, um, a doctorate or a postdoctorate, you have to have some sort of general skills as well. So I had to take an English test, what is normal, but then also the GRE test. And I was looking to it as a graduate test and I had to revise uh, all my mathematical <laughs> <laughs> lessons from oh. high school again so I found myself for three weeks like doing uh, mathematics for eight hours a it's day it's like a test in like how uh, in uh, common knowledge or yeah, like, yeah well not, well, not common I'm, but uh, not really common yeah. yes my mathematics are not that common but it was mathematics and then really profound English and critical writing what I found interesting actually that's something we didn't have here in in Belgium but it's really commenting on statements or articles yeah. and not accepting what is in those articles, but really thinking about it from different points of view and commenting on it. And I found it actually interesting to do already. Do you have any good tips for people who are applying for scholarships? Like, because you got it, yeah. so you must have done something that was really well. I think you should put a lot of effort in the writing and not be scared about the writing. Um, they also ask in American universities, they, they ask for theses in, in English. I only had one because I studied in Switzerland before, so I especially had to write another one. And I, yeah, I took a lot of time for it, put a lot of effort into it, and I think that really worked out. They are curious to see what your interests are, what are the topics or the subjects that you want to research. And they told me they, they kind of can see the, the personality and also if the person has the capacity to really complete a doctorate by reading those early theses. Yeah. In the beginning I was also scared with a lot of writing because we're musicians and we think, okay, we need five, six, seven, eight hours mm. a day of practicing. Where the hell would I find time to write? And it was actually very enriching. So I would say embrace the research and writing time. Yeah, I think that's good advice as well. And I, I always did a lot of effort in my research when yeah. I did them because I kind of get caught away and I always took a lot of pride in writing nice. 
And it is rewarding. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you have it all always. It's like a little bit like a book you can take with you. Sure. Like I did one in practicing when I was uh, like three years ago, when I did my pedagogic, for example. And then I can use it and I can also give exactly. it to my students. Exactly. So you can also use it for more things. Yeah, it's something for the for the next generation. And it's nice to give that through them as well. And it doesn't always have to be this difficult language. Because I mean, if no. you speak, if you write for musicians, then it should also be in a musician's language. Yes, or? yes. I think the academic language is really overrated. A lot of people who want to apply for a research project or, or a doctorate are really in panic about the application process. Yeah, I'm not a good writer or I don't know how to write academically. But that's really overrated because also when you, when you read articles, no one, no one can read those academic articles or understand them without reading them seven times. So what's the point then? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you better write something clear and people will get some stuff out of it. And I mean, uh, you were applying for America and America is, yeah. is very bold. Like American yeah. people are very uh, straightforward. They it's, are. It's, not, it's very different from Belgium, I would say. I, don't, I only met a few Americans. I've never been there myself, unfortunately. But... Uh, yeah. One time. <laughs> yeah, we'll go there, we'll go there for sure. But when I meet Americans, they're so open and they're yeah. like straightforward and they're really happy to share with you what they are good at. I never feel that it's in a bad way because it's just the kind of personality. Absolutely. Uh, but here, here I, I noticed when I studied in Belgium that people are a little bit like Swedish people. They're like, no, no, you should not tell people that you're good. They will yeah. tell you if you are good. Yeah. And you should always like try to speak down yourself a little bit yeah. because that's uh, more polite. And... It's very weird in one way that you do that and it's not so good mentally I think sometimes that you speak down yourself all the time because no. after a while you start believing that. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it really shapes our characters here as well. I was really surprised also for example people over there are really polite. When you go to the grocery store you also have people, it's a real job that they put your groceries into the bags. Here we do that ourselves, yeah. but there it's an actual job. But they talk to you constantly. And I wasn't used to that, standing at the grocery store, at the cashier, and then she was asking me, hey, how are you doing? How is your day? And I was really shocked by that mm -hmm. in the beginning. Because, yeah, especially in, I don't know if I can say that, especially in Belgium, but I experienced it like that. We're not the most polite people. And sometimes it's out of fear or shyness or maybe modesty. But actually it makes your day when people are so friendly. And I miss that from California, actually. Yeah. I think it's a little bit similar in Sweden. Like, if someone would do that, they would be like, huh, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Why are you talking with me? It's so shocking. Like, I don't know you. Why are we uh, having a conversation? So they're sitting next to someone in the bus, you know, like, what? There's a lot of seats. Why are you yeah. sitting next to me? Like, in America, like, yeah, I thought I could talk to with you. They do that constantly. <laughs> yeah. It makes life lighter, I think. Um, and uh, was you said, was it expensive living there? Or is it the same quite. as here? Uh, no, it's quite expensive. The south of California is expensive, the region itself. And other things are, are less expensive than here. So for example, what I found expensive was good food, decent mm. food. So to have vegetables or to eat healthy is quite expensive. Um, it's hard for vegetarians. <laughs> well, not in California because it's then, yeah, you have all the hipsters there uh, and all yeah, the okay. trends are developing yeah. in California. Okay. Uh, but it costs some money. Um, the housing market is quite expensive as well. That's why everyone is, is having roommates. But then electronic equipment and these things uh, were way cheaper than here. So to, 
yeah, kind of a finding a balance. It was just different. And you also studied in Switzerland, yes. which is also one of the expensive countries. Yes. <laughs> you have an expensive education. <laughs> Luckily, I'm only child. Yeah. <laughs> My poor <Mommy>. parents. <laughs> How was Switzerland then? I was completely different. So I didn't live in Switzerland. It was a postgraduate education, so um, it was not necessary to be there all the time. So what I did was uh, I had flute lessons every two weeks. So actually, I flew there <laughs> every two weeks. So I would take the plane to Milan and then the bus to Lugano and have a lesson and then stay at a hotel overnight. And the next day I would come back and that for two years, which is... Um, ridiculous when I think about it now. But I know a lot of people who does that, to that very conservatorium even. Because yeah, Lugano, have... it's, it's, it's so difficult to reach and yeah. so expensive to yeah. live. Um, it's also not easy to get a scholarship for Switzerland. They protect yeah. their, their money really well. Yeah, um, it's difficult to get uh, even to enter that conservatorium yeah. because they preferred, first of all, their own people yes. and then and maybe... Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There were a lot of Italian people uh, then because the teacher was, well, is still yeah. Italian, of course. But the country and also the education even was completely different than, than the US. It was really European conservatory with European music. So uh, a lot of Italian music, a lot of French music. Mm. And I learned a lot technically all the different techniques i got i'm i'm really happy for that that i got a, a big backpack of techniques when i left that conservatory but what i missed was life hmm. was the purpose of why am i playing and and the more social aspects or the more uh political aspects that is something that i really learned in the us yeah. and i don't think i could have learned it in europe actually to be honest so you think the difference between european style and american style is personality or do you have any more differences or? and activism yeah although crazy things are happening in the us right now i was there when obama was still president mm. and there is a huge difference between the both coasts and then the rest of the country but the universities are really liberal um, and they speak up more. They think more about what they are doing. So I encountered way more activist music or activist reasons why they are playing music. Mm. Um, everyone picks their own fights. So it can be feminism, it can be political oppression, it can be everything. But I find that in Europe we still play or we program too conservative like this is our tradition or this is the school where we come from or we come from German tradition mm. and there is not a lot of attention or awareness for the problems that are happening in our society. It's way more difficult I find to program music by female composers in, in Europe than it is in the US there it's like well yes yeah, sure you will have a balanced program and here it's i they still look at me sometimes with an alienated look on their face like what are you even talking about so there is a difference i find in awareness i think uh, that's really correct that's really what i've been feeling so i was like oh my god she also feels it. another <laughs> another person so it's true <laughs> but I, I was thinking that maybe it's because in europe we conserve music it's like conservatory yeah and in the us it's universities it's like okay future you know 
in Sweden we also have University of Music. We don't have conservatories. Yeah. But uh, so first time I went to Denmark, I'm like conservatorium. What what is this? You know, yeah. are we going to conserve something? It's like what are we conserving? And I also talked with a lot of people, and they always like refer to the old music at the, as the best music. Yeah. Like oh, the Bach music was the best thing. And I'm like yeah, but imagine like why things has to be the best they ever are now. You know because we have both Bach and Beethoven and Snitke, and we have like everything. I mean, Bach had only him and the guys before him. But then like uh, Prokofiev, we had Bach, Beethoven and all the guys. Yeah. You know, he had like the whole line and now we have like everything. We have so much. So I don't see why it was better before so much because I think it's better now because now we have so much variety. And also, like, there's a lot of discussions, like, no, I don't want to... If we discuss politics, it's always like, yeah, Wagner, he was a Nazist. We cannot listen to him. I'm like, okay, but if I'm going to think like that, all these guys, they were probably not very feministic. They were probably, like, discriminating all the women. They were probably, like, doing a lot of bad stuff to their women. Like, Mendelssohn was probably not the perfect uh, brother to his uh, sister, for example. And all these female gir- girls that are, like, in the, in the shadows of the men. So I mean like, so then that means that I cannot play any composer actually because no one of them were particularly nice to women. So I mean if we're gonna uh, take away Wagner because he was an atheist or have indication that he might have been that, uh, any woman could not play any music by exactly. anyone because all of them were bad as he was as a Nazis to the woman yeah, for yeah. a longer period of time. Yeah, also in the contemporary scene, for example, from Feldman is known now that he raped students and there are people raising their voice to kind of erase his music and I think we shouldn't. It's the same with... I find that it's the same with our colonial past that's dark part of our history, but we should not erase it because then we forget it. And and then you don't see the bad things and you can't make better either. Um, the, the Colonial Museum, the Africa Museum in Brussels reopened and there is a statue of the, the king at that time, Leopold II, who did some really awful stuff yeah. back in Congo. And there are then voices for tearing down the statue or not. And the statue is still there, but with a very critical text. And that is something that I am in favor of. You, you should not erase history. You should not erase your bad history. You should be confronted with your bad history and educate people by it. And I think it's the same also with those composers. Don't erase them. Play their music, but put everything in the correct light, in the correct context. Don't erase the bad things and only keep the good music. No, see it as one package and still play the music and, and still value the music of those people. But when you're passing it on onto your students or t- onto a, a next generation, also tell them what those people were. And I think I think that's necessary for avoiding the same mistakes all over again, generation after generation after generation. Yeah, you can... It really enlightened me when I came to Belgium because they had an expedition about uh, exactly this kind of... They did uh, a human zoo back in the days, like with uh, black people, and then like the white people could come and look at them, like they were animals yeah. in the zoo. Ah. 
And there was this expedition they had in, uh, for example, in Liège, where I studied in Belgium. And when I came there, I was like, what this, this, you know? I never heard of such a constellation even. So I was like, I was like safe over in my uh, country in Sweden, in the north. And I was like, I have no idea. It was so bad. Yeah. And then when I discovered it, I was like, wow, this is really important. And I didn't know this, you know? So yeah, we should If we just hide it, it, we, it's also like we repeat bad mistakes. Yeah. And we don't want to do that. So in order to learn, we have to analyze our mistakes and try to make it yeah, better. Yeah, and embrace those mistakes. Of course, you're ashamed of it, but shame is a good emotion <laughs> because that is feeding your moral compass. Yeah. And we cannot change change it, but we no. can uh, learn from it. Change our decisions exactly. that we do now. Yeah. Wow, we're really in the deep talk here. Yeah, not really deep music, water. right? <laughs> well, we are talking music also, but uh, music is is also used for a lot of things. And I mean, not all history is good. And that leaves me to like what makes uh, music, because a lot of people want to listen to music that makes them feel happy. And I would say that more the music is not doesn't have that goal, really. More the music wants to express all the kinds of feelings that you have. Ah. Uh, not only the comfortable ones. So it's really, uh, maybe that is one reason to why when my mother hears it, she's like, oh, I don't like this. What is this? You know, <laughs> she had like Bartok Viola concert. And she's like, he's sick in the head. And I'm like, but mother, it doesn't, this isn't written to explain something beautiful. It's, it wants you to feel bad. That's the reason they are playing it. So what do you have uh, to say about more the music and this kind of feelings? Because people can be really upset when they yeah. leave a, a concert. A concert, yeah. I think in contemporary music that happens even way more often. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good thing. As long as you evoke a reaction from your audience, the music mattered. And if that reaction is very emotional, or they feel really happy afterwards, or they, they think about the subject because a lot of concerts are always curated, um, are also curated towards a specific goal, like politic politics or political oppression or feminism or racism or whatever. And when people reflect on what they've heard and seen, that's that's the goal of music, that's the, the goal of performance. I, I always see it as a societal mirror and the societal a mirror is not a reflection of reality, but you see your own reflection in it and it's subjective. So it's your own subjective thinking on reality. And that's what music and concerts are as well. It's a representation of society, but of course with a subjective side to it as well. But when people leave a concert hall and feeling a little bit uncomfortable or not really know what they've heard or experienced or seen, I always think that's a good idea because a week later they're still thinking about it and then music really has a purpose. We always said at, at, at UCSD um, we have some really really ballsy women um, teaching there or, or completing their PhD. And Fernanda Navarro, she, she's one of my, my friends, she's a Brazilian composer, very activist, very confrontational, so she will never keep her mouth shut. But that's good, and she refuses to write beautiful music, because that's not necessary, because you don't think about beautiful music, she finds that kind of superficial. And she always digs deeper and deeper and, and she writes really raw music, but really meaningful music. And in the beginning, reactions are like, I don't really know what this is. And then after a week, those same people come to you like, yeah, that really changed my view on it. And I think that's important in music. 
And what would you like? Uh, we probably have some listeners who is wondering now what is modern music. Can you give us a definition of it? Well, there is no such thing as the contemporary music. Um, because we have to wait like some hundred years until we can get a, a, a clear picture of what is happening with the contemporary music. Yeah, or, and, and I'm not even sure that the clear picture will arise from this time period. When, when, we, when we look to the past, when we look to history, like the Middle Ages lasted for like about 10 centuries and then Baroque music was 150 years and it became shorter and shorter and shorter. And what we see in, in the 20th century, I think that is related to technology as well, individualism is rising, um, especially now with internet as well, where places like Haiti were very exotic at the beginning of the 20th century. Now you just Google everything and you see, oh, that happened in Haiti. So you can travel everywhere just behind your computer and composers also do that. So sometimes I find it disturbing not seeing real movements anymore. Like the Dadaist movement, for example, I find it really strong from the beginning of the 20th century. And I don't think we are experiencing that anymore. Everything became way more individual. So that also makes it really hard to define what is contemporary music. Generally speaking, modern music is classified as music from the beginning of the 20th century until about 1975, and then contemporary music is from 1975 and so on. But there are a lot of styles and a lot of movements. There is the, for example, the new complexity, what is um, what was developed around the 80s, and those were mostly the male composers in Darmstadt, real avant-garde again, and they were writing very complex with a superimposition of parameters. Now it's politically incorrect to say new complexity. You have to tell you have to call it the so-called new complexity. Mm. But then there is also minimal music. What was happening yeah. in New York or the New York School? So there's so many different styles and elements happening at the same time time that is really difficult to define but contemporary music is made by composers today with means of today so they use a lot of new media um, a lot of new technology but they also search for the limits of the instruments and of the performers themselves as well a bunch of techniques we call the extended techniques and those are techniques that um, are everything but normal playing on the instrument that can go really really far and um, what is happening now, now, I think you can call a new movement a new discipline. It happened with, it started with Jennifer Walsh. She wrote a manifest about it. And that's with really theatrical music, with a lot of theatrical elements, sometimes no music at all, or a performer that is acting instead of playing an instrument. Um, so they're looking for honesty and sincerity inside human, inside the performer without the superficial training of a trained instrument. Uh, but at the same time, you still have people writing minimal music and electronic music and new complexity music and everything. And they also like, my experience is that they use more sound than actually like harmonics and... Yes, yes. Like it's not a, a constructed music in that way that is like tonica, dominant, no. this accord and that accord is more like I want this kind of sound and then you use a lot of sound on the instrument like yeah. 
if you will describe it like you you will use your bow on the cello to make a scratching sound yeah. like instead of playing a yeah. normal note that is so you are using the whole instrument instead of uh, all the strings uh, on it so yeah exactly and and there is no real horizontal structure as we know it and there is no real vertical structure yeah. anymore as we know it so it's really looking for sound and the meaning behind that sound the affect like what can i express with that sound like that squeaking sound that you were mm. mimicking on on the cello for example that can really shock people and that's then the intention they want to shock people something that i get a lot on contemporary music is like oh all those new techniques that are not notes and not rhythms and not pitches is that really necessary and i think it is because otherwise i think music could become too too objective nowadays um we've seen the trend in 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 the 50s with serialism um, we've seen the trend with new complexity in, in the 80s that people are composing with algorithms, so very mathematical. Mm. And if you then only have rhythms and pitches, real notes, it becomes very, very mathematical, very analytical. But by choosing those sounds, those, those techniques, you actually put musical meaning behind that algorithm. And that shapes those pieces and I believe it puts those pieces on another level because of it. And I, I just got a thought here when you were talking. Like, I mean, if we start with Palestrina, who was like one of the first guys that we uh, learn about in the conservatorium, yeah. because he had like one million uh, rules for how to compose. Yeah. Uh, like we call it contrapunt in Swedish. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's okay, a in contrapunt. <laughs> yeah, in contrapunt. <laughs> so then you have to like learn so many rules, and then you're like. Oh, I don't know if I can write this route. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then so it really like drives you mad. And um, then we get like more and more free. And like now it's escalating. So now it's like, do whatever you want, you know. Uh, but it has to have a meaning. So we yes. uh, do more artistic music than uh, craftsman music. Because I always like to like divide a musician in a craftsman who is playing an instrument, who is uh, working in one way, and then an artist who is trying to create something. Mm -hmm. And those two have to live in symbiosis, sort of. And sometimes you are better at one thing than the other, so you always have to work on that. So now it's like super free and it's more about sound and maybe like uh, in the future we will be back to the Palestina way because it's always like goes like that in the history like wow 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 and then like and then you okay, go back yeah back again <laughs> I regret now we need to, to change again yeah I, I find it difficult to imagine we did it well it it's not we did an experiment it's just like people know this try to imagine architecture in the future and you get some crazy ideas. Yeah. There are people like making houses way high in the yeah. sky. Or try to imagine future fashion. Yeah. And then you get like those silver suits and yeah. a little bit <laughs> like a spaceman. But then try to imagine future music. Yeah. No one can tell what it is. We don't have that oral no. um, imagination that we have with visual imagination. Like for example, when you take the movie Back to the Future, it was from 85 and Marty would go to 2015 yeah. and everything changed and they were like envisioning technology in the craziest way. But he would go into a diner and Michael Jackson was still playing. So yeah. it's really difficult to imagine future music. So yeah. where will it end or where, where will it go back to? I have no idea. I can't see real tendencies at the moment. Every composer that I work with is so individual and so different 
that it's that it's hard to see what a generalization can be or maybe that that is just a characteristic of living in your time that you cannot see the bigger picture because you're involved with it but i think it's really great because uh, uh composition if you like look up the word like our composition teacher had we do it's like what is composition what is a composition and it's actually organized sound yeah so when people go to a modern concert and they expect something that is melodic or something that is beautiful or makes you feel happy, then um, they're actually not in the correct way uh, defining the way of a composition because a composition is organized sound and it can be any sound actually. Yeah, and any organization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I found it very refreshing to listen to modern music. I don't feel it's uncomfortable or anything because I sometimes can get very sleepy and very uh, tired of um, music that, that I'm used to that I know that, okay, now it's been this accord, so probably we are going to go to the dominant. Oh, yeah, we did, okay. So then exactly. I know what to expect. Yeah. So I really like this surprise uh, with um, modern music and uh, the first episode in Master Music with the Jacqueline Hammerling. Yeah. She said that, yeah, a lot of people, they say that they want adventures, but uh, they don't really there to go for an adventure that's why they don't go for uh, modern music because True. they're afraid of a, an adventure but it sounds good to say that you are uh, adventurous but uh, they are not really and and sometimes you can also be surprised by people for example my parents my my mother they both grew into the contemporary scene with me I don't think that was their idea when their seven-year-old daughter started playing started mm. playing flute. I don't think they would have imagined that I would end up doing Fernie Howe on a flute. But they really grew into it. And by now, my, my mom said she has difficulties listening to classical music again. Because she's like, oh yeah, and there you have it. The cadence will come. Mm. And I find that so refreshing. They're not musicians at all. They, they don't have a musical background and that even because, yeah, they're used to the weird stuff that I'm doing, that they also recognize the, the structure and the patterns in classical music. But that is because they've heard something else and now they find that, oh yeah, that's, that, that's not really adventurous. Well, and and it's, it's really great to see how they embraced uh, modern art modern music, modern visual arts, just by taking that jump, by being brave to be adventurous. Like, okay, this is not what normal people do, but let's go to a contemporary music concert. Yeah, and I experienced that a lot of children, they like it. Yeah. Because they don't have an, uh, a reference. No, and they see a lot of visual things happening. And when they self are playing, it sounds uh, like more than music sometimes because they can make all kinds of sound yeah because they don't have a, a reference of how it should sound so exactly. they just play anything yeah. that they can sort of i did it myself a lot on pianos when i was ki a kid and my mother hated when i was playing piano but uh, i loved it i couldn't stay away i was like oh bam 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 oh this yeah. is oh this makes me feel like this why and you know and then if you get a reaction for your body of course, as a children, you will do it again because you you put it in your mouth again and you do all this kind of stuff that children does. Uh, and I think that's really lovely. So something is a social structure, what we, what we define as music and yeah. what we like in music. Even uh, though we would like to say that we are not affected, we are affected 
in the social structure in music as well as other things. Yeah, yeah. So it's really uh, important to do this uh, kind of adventurous music that um, are provoking the structures. Yes, which, and, which and, is cool. And the creativity, because exactly with children, um, you were talking before with with artistry and creativity versus craftsmanship. Well, with children, <laughs> there is no craftsmanship, yeah. of course. It's all very creative and. When I see some students playing, I yeah, I find it a pity that they they lost their personality because of life, because of education. And what I find really rewarding in contemporary music or in, in working with composers today is that you yourself as a performer can be way more creative than in that restricting world of classical music. Yeah. Do you have any good advice with working with composers? Um, yeah, communication. Communication is key. I can't stand performers saying, oh no, that's not possible. Of course it's possible, you just have to try. And you're not able to do it today, but you might be able to do that in three months. Yeah. And if you say constantly, it's not possible, well, a composer and yourself will not be innovative. And we should try and, and we should reach for n new territories to explore. Um, so I would say to performers, be open and be willing to, to be a guinea pig with composers and talk a lot. Um, I've, I've had, and they're still my best friends, um, the people that I met in, in, in San Diego, we had long coffee talks or, or beer talks and um, really philosophing about music or what sound can be and, and we were planning on changing the world of course that that never happened but still the plan was there mm. but some it's really, not too late it's not too late <laughs> we still have to go for it but still a lot of new things novelty came came out of it so i think as a performer you should be really open in communicating with a composer and also believing their quest and they're describing sounds, they're describing emotions or effects. And sometimes they give you a technique and that might not be the ideal technique for it. And then I find it really rewarding when you're working together and that you're just searching, researching your instrument. Like when you take a flute, it's a tube. And mm. when you put wind through that tube, you have sound. So that's mm. actually a flute. And there is so much you can do with it. And I find it really rewarding to, to discover what the tube is capable of. And do you have any tips for composers working with musicians? Yeah, also communicate. Express really what you want and what your desired sound might look like. And then leave it to the performer because they know their instrument best, they know their body best. And when you see that a performer is not open enough, talk with them. It never helps to say like, ah, yeah, that is not what I'm looking for. Mm. But it really helps when, when you give them the, the background story. Where does it come from? Why do you want to write this? Where do you want to go with your music? And when your performer is really into that story as well, it, it makes it way easier for the performer to open up as well. Mm. So I think it's um it's a correlation between the both of them, performer and composer, and openness and open mind and communication are really important. Yeah.
I think that's one Not of the problems general. we have in general. <laughs> like if when a quarter doesn't work or you have a trio and you're fighting, it's because you have different co- communications. Yeah. And it's natural to happen because everyone is from a different place in the world, uh, different languages. Like even in Belgium, you have like three official oh, languages. Yeah. So just to speak to your countrymen can be difficult. Yeah. So um, I think communication is so important. I think we should be more trained in it in school, actually, yeah. uh, in uh, how to work together with other people. Yeah. like uh, communication skills and group exercises how to work with other people absolutely there is a there is a research field in feedback sessions and yeah there are there are videos on youtube of that and that's like how to deliver well critique or some comments but in in a very proactive way nice Um, you know what they're called i i i knew what they were called but I don't know anymore what they <laughs> are called. But you find it under feedback sessions. Yeah. Um, what was really interesting. But then what is actually really, I find that that is really lacking in our education at conservatories. And at universities I find it's better, but at the conservatory you go into your classroom and you do your scales and etudes and repertoire for eight hours a day and that's it but you don't learn how to communicate or how to work or collaborate with people. And there is, at at, at every conservatory, we have a composition department. But those people, those students need to learn as well. And often they're just left there composing in an abstract way because they have no one to talk to. So they're putting things on paper Mm. and then they hope that it gets performed one day or for an exam. And then the result is completely different than what they had in their mind. But that's logical because they don't have the opportunity to work together, to collaborate. And that is something that I really want to see changed at conservatories. Yeah, it's, uh, I always got this like 10 emails the week of the uh, composition. Oh, exam. yes. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, this is very difficult stuff and I cannot just play it without uh, practicing. And also I have yeah. my own exam. Uh, so I mean, like... I think they could do um, a course in playing yes. modern music and yes. then that you play a composer's thing and you do yeah. an exam in that so you actually collaborate because now it's like put on over your head yes. like the last and thing last that minutes. you do and you like do it half-heartedly because you don't have enough time to put yourself into it and that's exactly. like oh. and then the and result then you feel is bad not, because yeah. you didn't do a good job because I think like the key to good uh, to success is preparation a lot of times. Also, if you come prepared to rehearsal, exactly. it's very rarely that you feel like shit afterwards. Yeah. Unless someone is really treating you bad. But if you're always prepared, I, I always have good experience when I'm prepared. Right. And when I am not prepared, I feel bad. Uh, yeah, it adds bad. stress also yeah. in, in your body. And I stress. Yeah. and yeah. yeah, that is something that, that, that needs to change. At the conservatory in Liège, um, it's, it's better already and, and um, that's really hopeful. There is more communication throughout the year already between composers and, well, and me at the moment, but I'm passing it on yeah. towards the students. Because you are a professor there. In, in Liège, yes. In the, in the extended flute technique. Well, yeah, in contemporary <laughs> flute, uh, yeah. and, and, which is really nice. Um, so yeah, you're really great students. I heard their exam. There was top-notch yeah i was really so happy with what i saw because they developed their personality we also talked like okay this is contemporary music 
I don't want to see you on stage just dressed in black concert clothes. I was like, no, 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 this is not the image. And I always give them before a concert or before an exam, I give them the exercise. Okay, and now you're going to think about your concept. What are you playing? What are you representing? How will you dress? What is your image? How will you come on stage? And they did that. It was mm. fantastic to see yeah. those young people develop in, in that way. Y you really see their personalities coming out and they do crazy stuff by now, which is great. Also by the conservatory that they allow it. I also work at the conservatory in Antwerp. Yeah. And that is more a conservatory in a traditional way. So a lot of 19th century music. No contemporary department. Theresa. But then you have like a, a creation group. Yes, yeah. yeah, that is so, so um, there is a research group, so there is a research department in Antwerp, which is really great. Um, we have a lot of research projects every year, but also doctoral students, so they stay a little bit longer, yeah. what, is, what is really nice to work with them. I liked your last uh, project. <laughs> Our festival. Yeah, with the socks. <laughs> you have to yeah. tell me about that. Well, so Creasi is, is a little bit the, the anarchist of the, of the research department, and we focus on contemporary performance. And uh, we will have our first festival, research festival, in December. Um, it will not be a dry and dull research festival with only presentations, but I want them to get on stage and to experiment. So we will have open workshops where everyone can participate. There will be tryouts where the researchers have no idea what the result will be. There will be concerts, there will be um, a book launch. Of course, there will also yeah. be a reception. With your book. <laughs> it will be my book. Because you already wrote the book. It's like, hello. Yes. I, <laughs> Why I, wait until you're like 50? I can write one now. <laughs> yes. I, maybe I should have waited until I was 50, but it, it would have become too big of a book then. So maybe it's good. Yeah, that I mean, I it's did. also like everything developed so fast. So yeah, and, and it was the the well the end goal of my research project. I was researching how to implement contemporary music in a conservatory and what the difficulties are with students or the um, they're really scared a lot of times to play contemporary music mm. like oh my technique and and my sound will go bad no of course not mm. and so i was researching like okay what are the problems what are the problematic parameters actually a method came out of it and i was like okay i should probably write down that method and that became the book and the book is called the book is called Tomorrow's Music in Practice Today, a practical guide towards deciphering contemporary music. Yeah, it's a very nice t title. Well, it's um, it's especially to, to not talk about history, but to talk about present day and future. That's why I call it Tomorrow's Music. Mm. And it's with tips and tricks technically. So for example, um, you get really weird rhythms in contemporary music, we call them there is, for example, the, the polyrhythms. It's really difficult to decipher sometimes. Or there are irrational bars that are not part of our binary or ternary system. So you can have those weird meters and bars, like an uh, 11, 10 bar for something, what is completely abstract to a human mind. But there are some um, formulas to calculate that. So that's the really technical part. Um, but also how to prepare your score, because I work with a color code to make reading mm. contemporary music easier and less of an effort. When you use color on scores, I find um, you don't need to read anymore, you just see it. 
and that reduces practicing time afterwards. I also color. I have a color scheme, but it's because I have, d- have dyslexia. So ah, no- so, yeah. yeah, so even normal schools for me is like, ah! yeah. makes me scared. But when I have the colors, I my brain can see it. Yeah. And then I don't have to read it, so then I kind of know it. But no one told me that until I was like 25. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I understand. <laughs> it's like, oh. A teacher, she was like, yeah, but you have this dyslexia. You cannot read music like other everyone else. You have to have a system, you know. And she was also teaching Guildhall. Her name is Ursula Smith. So she gave me some methods because there they have a lot of things for the dyslexia persons. Like right. People with dyslexia and more than 10% yeah. of the people in the conservatorium have dyslexia. So and no one cares about it. No one even talks about it. Like sometimes when I say it, people are like, don't tell. Don't tell. Oh yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, don't tell, you know, and it was even like you were considered a bit retarded, like, <sighs> until like recently in Sweden, like you you, you had, the, you couldn't get uh, the top premium insurance if you had it. Oh, really? <laughs> like, what? It's not Why? like you're going to read even, wrong or no. something like and get killed because of it, like, it's not that bad, it's you know? It's not a chronic disease, no. No, it's just that. It's actually, it's, it's not a disease, it's just a fault in our language, actually. Yeah. Because if a lot of people have it, it's not a fault in, in the it's person. It's a variation. It's because it's a natural behavior, it's just uh, our language is not designed for it. And actually other languages, like yeah. Asian languages, they don't have it because their language is not st- structured the way that yeah, our language exactly. is structured. And actually, like, Picasso and Einstein had dyslexia, so, you know, come on, hey. uh, give me a break. But the color scheme is really yeah. effective, I think. Yeah. That was yeah. my point. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. use it. Also, for people without dyslexia, yeah. it can, I find it really um, effective. It takes some time to prepare your scores beforehand. I tell it to students in the beginning every time, and then it takes a couple of times mm. before they actually do it. And then when they start doing it, it's like, oh, this is so much easier. And then mm. I get the typical teacher moment, I told you so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> but it really, it really helps. Also, when we now, for example, play music from the 70s, there is way too much information on the score. Um, techniques and sounds were invented, if we can use that word, back then. So mm-hmm. performers really didn't know what to do exactly with those symbols and, and with those effects. And now such a symbol is actually common language for a present-day performer. And sometimes there are like three symbols for one effect or that you get the text boxes in between the scores like you yeah. have to do this but when you score when you color only the things that are necessary a a contemporary score what is at first very complex can become pretty simple afterwards yeah. so it's a good idea to color you yeah so uh, for example if i would uh, to play a contemporary piece mm-hmm. so first thing would be to color it First thing is marking the beats. Okay, the beats. Okay. The beats. That that Do you really have a special sounds... color for that? Or? No, just black. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it really sounds like kindergarten <laughs> put all the bars of the beats on your score, but it really, really, really helps. Even yeah. with conducting, those are humans as well. They can mess up as well. Yeah. But when you have that mnemonic visual on they score... They mark so much in their scores. Yeah, they do. When they, they do. learn it. Too. Yeah. They do. So why aren't we doing that as performers? So first step is marking the beats and then I start coloring the dynamics because that also can be very counterintuitive in, in modern music, in contemporary music. 
for example, the, how, the way a flute is built, the high register is way louder than the low register. Of course, what the composers like mm. <laughs> to write super pianissimo mm. in the high register. But when you color that counterintuitive yeah. trajectory of the dynamics, you, you don't forget it, you actually do it. Because dynamics, I find, is a parameter that is easily overlooked by yeah. students, but also by musicians in, in general. We, we have the tendency to play loud all the time. Yeah. Well, you can make a bigger effect when you also go very, very, very soft. Mm. Um, and then I highlight some tempo changes. And I especially color the the different um, meters in contemporary music. Mm. Every bar can have a different time signature. So I developed two different color codes in how to deal with that. And then I highlight the extended techniques, the ones that are easily overlooked. A, for example, to give an example, a flatter tongue, which sounds like yeah. in the flute. Those are just three diagonal lines um, across the note. When you have a lot of information on the score, you don't always see that. And when you color it in a bright color, you easily see it and you, you won't forget it while you're practicing because undoing things that you have learned wrongly is way more difficult than just yeah. doing everything correct from, from the beginning. So it's kind of a mental practice with the yeah. colors first. With just the colors first. And, and then you get also the visual structure of that piece. What is the downside of it when you lose your score and you have to play from a completely mm. blank score again? It feels very unfamiliar because you get really familiar and trained to those to yeah. those colors. So good advice, don't lose your scores. <laughs> yeah, maybe in the future score writing will develop so that we also use colors because it's very that old is, fashioned. Yes. That is something that I'm suggesting actually in the book as well mm. and I included some examples of composers who already worked with colors. Those are people that I worked with closely and they incorporated in their writing already and I find it really 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 good. It helps so much. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can only advise the composers Think about color. Mm. Yeah. Color never hurt. And also like there's a lot of color psychology so you could actually like fool yourself into um, yeah. seeing stuff that yeah. is important. That's actually what I'm trying to do with me. So I, I uh, use colors that they are, are like red is for example danger. Uh -huh. So I use like because white cars they get more they are more in like traffic accidents than red cars. Because red cars you see more. Yeah. That's also why the, the light is uh, red, yellow and, and green yeah. because it's like different approach. So for me everything that is natural is green and every sharp note is orange. Uh -huh, and uh, the, the B flats are uh, B, uh, the flats, the flats are blue. Uh -huh. So it's a blue note. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> just kidding. But th so that's how I use it. Yeah. Because my problem is mostly to get the right note there. Exactly. Because yeah. the expressions I can see, but uh, the notes are the letters for me. Yes. And I that's see. the problem in dyslexia. But but it's very nice that you can manipulate yourself so so easily. Absolutely. Then you're like, oh, I saved so many hours because you said also like, oh, I write this eight hours, and I'm like, I don't. I never have energy or time to no. practice that much. We know? don't do that anymore. <laughs> Once you're out of conservatory, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> so how much do you practice? Not that much anymore, I think two hours a day. Yeah. And then it, it depends on whether I have big projects coming up. When that is the case, it's a lot more, of yeah. course. But it's it's more in sequences. While it was every day, also when I was in California doing all the crazy Fernie Howe stuff, it was really mm. five hours of Fernie Howe every day for 18 months, which was 
too much. It's mm. really driving you crazy. Yeah. What is the Fernie Howe? The Fernie Howe. So Brian Fernie Howe mm. is, um, well, I'll, I'm going to be politically correct, the so-called father of the so-called oh. new complexity movement. And he wrote six pieces for flute solo. So not only the concert flute, but also piccolo, alto flute and bass flute. Yeah. And in total, there are six solo pieces. And those are the pieces that were the topic of my doctoral research. And then I also also performed them, of course, in, in a concert. So I had my one big Fernie Howe concert, which is an hour of Fernie Howe music, but sounds scary and is quite scary. But his, his scores are so unbelievably complex. So you have a superimposition of parameters that are taken to an extreme and to actually learn those scores because in the beginning I'm always questioning or doubting like will I practice it or just hanging it on the wall like a painting because it's yeah. it's that graphic almost and it takes hours and hours and hours it's really note per note and it just takes a long time before you're at the end of the piece yeah. so that really took a lot of time yeah And uh, so that was part of your uh, doctorate. So what do you need to become a doctorate? You need a solo recital or you choose to make a solo um, recital? Well, that depends on the institution and on mm. the continent. So my doctoral education was completely different than the doctoral education that we offer now in Antwerp, for yeah. example. What is happening here is that there is first an application process with um, your actual academic research and then your artistic capacities and people choose a topic to research and they do that quite independently um, so they can follow some courses at the university mm -hmm. but it's very limited and most of the time they're really researching so reading articles and books and going to conferences or going into archives on by themselves very independently they have a supervisor I have for example two doctoral researchers but it's their research so I can only give advice when they're stuck for example um, what I had in San Diego was completely different it's actually with coursework yeah. so first of all we have uh, to have credits every quarter and you have to choose courses which was unbelievably interesting um, because I, I just explored so many territories that I didn't know they existed for example just intonation I had no idea what it was but it's a special tuning system derived from five limit tuning seven limit tuning 11 limit tuning and so on and it's tuning for two hours straight yeah. and in the beginning I was completely lost because yeah. you start with a drone on a low C and then you have someone playing the D the E the F the G the A and yeah. the B so it's seven people together and you think how can that be an harmonious chord yeah. and it is it is unbelievable you get into um, higher spheres and atmospheres when you're tuning Something else I had never done was, for example, installation art. Discovered it there. Um, so that was really rewarding that they gave you that input. And yeah, you, you did like uh, three installation arts uh, yeah. that I read uh, yeah. about. You have to tell us about them. Um, I love the one with the twist her. Yeah, the twist her. That is the... <laughs> So when because listeners cannot see it, it's it's written twist dash her, not the twister as the game we know it. But it is with the twister game, but only uh, men can participate, and they have to wear overalls. And we we taped balloons on them on uh, sensitive body parts of women. 
So we made them breasts with balloons where we were putting balloons on their butt and, and things like that. So that they came became aware of what a female body might be and where you're uh, conscious about. And then they had to play the game Twister. And of course you don't want those balloons to pop. So they had to avoid contact with each other with those body parts. And at the same time, women were surrounding them and uh, they had headphones, Bluetooth headphones, and we were catcalling the, the whole time. So what women experience on public transportation or on the street, mm. we were saying those exact same things to them. Oh. And they were, they were really distracted by it. And, and they became aware of what it is to protect yourself and to protect your body as a woman and how everything is based on on sexuality with the with the cat calling they were really uncomfortable yeah. so that was a goal of course yeah um i think it's a brilliant plan because this is a game everyone knows it yeah uh, and it's also when you play it it's like different because you play it with other guys and girls and how you move yeah. and yeah it's uh, it's a good uh, uh, symbolic there i'm like wow and i love when you can put guys into the situation of a woman like sometimes I, yeah. I have some friends, they came to me, yeah, this uh, homosexual uh, was hitting on me. I was like, yeah, yeah it happens. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, uh, like that would be like a big thing. And so, so when I came to South Europe, because I'm in Sweden, it's more like the girl will also hit on the guys. It's not like a, uh, a surprise that the girl will like flirt with you or like say, oh, hi, do you want to take a beer mm-hmm. or sometime, you know, like ask you out on a date. But here it was like, what's, what the weirdo you are? Like, I got really this kind of reaction that the guys got so scared of me. And I was like, okay, I was just wanted to take out on a date. But okay, never mind, you know. Uh, so I had to like become yeah, passive in yeah. order to uh, be able to have one date, you know. I was like, okay, how, how can it be like this? And then this kind of, oh, you will let him pay if you like him. And if you don't like him, you pay. And I was like, what? It's yeah. like... That is something I never heard. I'm like, I, I don't understand it. Of, of course, I had a lot of Latino friends, but I was like, okay, but why can I not pay for my own things? You know, it's like, he doesn't have more money than me. Yeah, exactly. Both I mean, independent woman, damn it. Everything is weird. Or like, okay, I can pay. And the next time you pay, like, it's normal equality, you know, I like it. But it was a very different. And I was like, oh my God, it's very old fashioned, this. And yeah, it's a macho culture. Uh, yeah, it's it's very weird, these kind of secret rules. And like every time I had to go on a date with a guy from another country, I was Googling, like dating this kind of person. <laughs> How do you act, you know? Because like in the first date, it's very hard to look past your prejudices. Yes. Because uh, even to order to just get a chance, you have to like know the rules, yeah. sort of. Um, which is the same with the Swedish girl. Like, if you would uh, always try to pay her, she would be like, huh, you tried to buy me? You know, it's like the opposite. So there would be like a bit collusions there sometimes. I see. But Sweden is like, it's up in the north. It's like we're isolating. We have our own rules going yeah, on. Yeah, We don't so. tell them because we're like, no, <laughs> I'm going to keep them to myself. It's going to be a secret. And if you do something wrong, we, I'm just going to be silent, si- silently ignoring you. <laughs> because I don't like conflicts because that's Sweden, you know. We don't like conflicts. We're like... We're on both sides. Uh, how do we start talking about... Uh, Twister. We With talking Twister, about Twister. Yeah. And I start to tell me about my dating life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was one installation and then you also did one um, about life and death. Yeah, there, there was um, a video installation where it was a collaboration with a composer, um, artist, composer. He's actually more an artist 
who you, yeah who expresses himself through composition. I think that's a correct definition yeah. for him. That was with, with artist Bradley Scott Rosen and we entered UCSD together. And the first quarter, um, that's a course, so it's obliged, the incoming composers have to write for the incoming performers, mm. which is great because you get to know each other, you get to know your classmates. Um, we had a fantastic year, so we still are best friends, although we all live in different places, but mm. that's a connection that will never ever go away. And I had some really, really nice experiences. And one of them was with Brad. He was the first first composer actually, because I came from Europe and I was used to also the conservatory life. Although it was in contemporary music, it was really the conservatory life. You have a stand with a score and you play what is on the score. Mm. And he was completely not interested in that. He was interested in the effects and the emotions and he didn't care about an actual flute sound. He didn't want a flute sound. So for the first time I had to go on stage and not play flute. I had to breathe. So you, you get those very uncomfortable breathing sounds where you inhale and then it sounds... Because he wanted, I, his definition, a sensual sound. Mm -hmm. But I was really shy in doing that in the beginning because I had never done it. So I had to start it like that. <gasps> Things like that, starting yeah. music like that and doing that on stage. And that really, really pushed my performance boundary. So I'm really grateful to him. And the big part of the piece is text and text in my own language. So we talked about what he wanted to do. The piece is exactly about life and death. He witnessed one of his best friends shooting himself to death by accident. Wow. So he was, yeah. That friend of him was, was, was acting dumb and was playing and toying around with mm -hmm. a gun. And of course accidents happen uh. with a gun. And he was shot, he was killed. And Brad saw that exact moment when he was actually falling down on the ground. And for him that seemed like an eternity, the, the moment of the shot. And then he saw that his friend falling down on the ground mm. and he knew he was dead when he was on the ground but in his head it was still like when was the exact moment from the shot and falling down to the ground where he was dead what happened in that transition where did that transition happen and it was a, a way for him to deal with that loss and we talked about it a lot and first we wanted to use French because he likes the French language I was like okay I'm Belgian I can do French as well sure but then he realized no I want it really sincere I want it really personal we're gonna use your language so it became a piece in Dutch mm. And the text is by him and I translated it. Um, there's some sentences, Flemish sentences, that I saw in text or in books that are included as well. Mm. And the structure of the piece is text. Um, and the piece is called Lacunae. And a Lacunae is when you, in music, have suddenly a moment when there is no sound. Mm. And in this piece it's the exact opposite. The Lacunae is a box, literally on the score, that is filled with music, with the sound. Yeah. So you had text through the flute, amplified through the flute, whispering, and then you had very, very soft, subtle sounds that were interspersing mm. that text. And we did it as a piece first, because it was this Jerry piece, but then it stayed in our head and we developed it actually into a, a video installation um, where we're also playing around with open eyes and closed eyes to, to really give a meaning to what is internal or what can be ex expressed towards um, an audience. And when the flute things happen, the screen goes black 
and to, to really emphasize those lacunae, but also give some moments of reflection to, to an audience. It was really weird because I had the camera sticking on my face, I think the same distance as I'm sitting from this microphone right now. Yeah. So that was really a yeah, confrontation. Well trained. Well trained. <laughs> um, but I think it worked well too, because it's very invasive when you look at the video. Uh, my face is really um, big <laughs> and uh, it, it looks like I'm, I'm really close to the audience and mm. that invasive atmosphere I believe works for the, for the purpose of, uh, of that installation. So are you afraid of dying? <laughs> no, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of knowing when I would die. I think our biggest blessing is not knowing our faith. When you read articles of young people that have a life-threatening disease chronically and they know they will die in six months, yeah. I think this is the worst thing that can happen to you because you know your faith. And I think that must be very, very scary. But I have this idea of dying that it happens like yeah. that. You don't know anything anymore. So you're not conscious that you're dead, yeah. I think. So I'm not afraid of dying, but I don't want to know it beforehand. Yeah. Um, uh, I think death is such a powerful tool to work with, and I think people don't people forget about it. Death sometimes, like it's so uh, like in, in our news field and so, yeah. but we don't really engage in it. Like I used to work uh, in a palliative care hospital where you take care of people dying, and when people hear they're like wow, and I was like yeah, but it was very natural because they were very sick, so I, I never got that kind of feeling that I was damaging myself because I was so close to death mm -hmm. because I was always like yeah okay it's gonna die now I know it and I was sitting there next to them while they were they were dying and I saw the whole process and it was really painful a lot of times like it took two weeks for them to die wow like, but also doesn't know that when you die it's like at least in the hospital like that and you die by a disease or old age then you're like um, having this kind the, the body's shutting down and that can take a lot of time and like death comes in so many forms and people really don't think about it because maybe it's scary but I think it's really like you say that people don't want to know when they die yeah and but when other people die you would like to know when they die so you can prepare it for yeah. it because when you don't know that someone is gonna die that is close to you it's more painful uh, than if they uh, you know when I that they are sick because yeah. it's easier for me yeah. as a person next to you to know that okay see the like transformation and then yeah, at the end it just slips away yeah. you know but when it happens very quickly it's very hard I was just asking you because I wanted to see like get an image of how your performance could have been because I'm really intrigued I want to see it <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, well you can find it online yeah. the video but that's like, not the performance <laughs> yeah I have to to look at it it sounds so good I was like I really want to develop more I also I don't do similar things but I did one time for an exam because uh, exams can be so boring and so oh, yeah. big pressure and I'm like oh I, I cannot do another boring exam I said to myself so then I took like a, there's a solo piece of Mach um, Max Brooks. Mm -hmm. My sister actually, she's very good at writing, so she made the text of uh, when our grandfather died because he got a heart attack on a boat and she he died in my sister's knee when she was only like four uh, years old. Or oh something. wow! Yeah, so she wrote the text about this, very poetic text, and it's not not a masterpiece, but it's very beautiful and very pure. 
And because that is not like a Shakespeare piece, you can do something with it. Yeah. Because my teacher always said that if you have two uh, things that are not uh, masterpieces uh, single, if you put it together with something, it becomes a masterpiece. Yeah. Because then it's like combinating each other. Because you cannot have a very good text with very good music. Because then it's two good things that will... It's a competition. Uh, yeah, will take out each other. But one is something... She also wrote it when she was 16. It is a very beautiful text and it really like moves me. So then I put it next to it. Trans, uh, tr- um, I got it translated to French because I was doing the exam in French and they don't speak English. No, so, we know that in yeah, Liège. <laughs> they, they were first. So in order so they could read the text Yeah. in French to yeah. understand it, but they spoke it in Swedish. Okay. So I did it in Swedish and they did it in, and they could understand the text in French because I didn't want to take away the you know the pureness well, of the I'm language. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I completely agree with that because for me, text can have meaning in two ways. When it is in a language that you understand, mm-hmm. then you immediately get an objective idea of what is meant. So, for example, when you hear the word table yeah you think of a table yeah but when you hear something in a different language and you have no idea what the text is i find that it leaves room for more imagination the reason why he used a dutch text for this piece is because it was too personal and he didn't want the audience to understand exactly Uh. what was happening and there were some parts in english and that because it was English, that becomes right into your face and very invasive suddenly. But the text, what was in my language, or in your case, what was in your language, you know what it means. And you search more expression and meaning behind it. And the way that you then perform it will guide an audience, but in an abstract way. And sometimes with opera, for example, I don't want to know the translation of the text because it takes some of the imagination and and actually the experience away for me at least. I like the the secrecy or the mystery behind language. For example, I wanted I didn't do it in the end um, for political reasons, but I wanted to make for an installation class. I wanted to make a an installation around ISIS. It was very at the beginning Mm -hmm. and in Belgium there was a big trial at that moment and the news didn't really reach um, the US yet. So I thought, okay, this is is good. This is something from my country, what is happening there right now and I'm going to make something Mm -hmm. um, about it. And I got in contact with, he's a very famous war journalist in in Flanders, um, Rudy Franks, Mm -hmm. and he just escaped an attack in Syria. But he interviewed people and he gave me the raw material his, his DVDs without subtitles. So yeah. I was hearing those people that I didn't know and I had no clue what they were saying, of course, because it was also in dialects in, in Syria. But because of the fear in their eyes and the intonation that they were using in the language or the speed of the language, you could understand what they were going through without understanding every objective meaning of every single word. And I find that very powerful. Then and you use like the language like, like an instrument. You use the language, yeah, as, 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 as music. Mm. Theater for me has less magic than a concert because theater is too concrete. Music can be way more abstract and therefore you can use your own creativity and imagination and it can have a bigger impact than mm. when something is explained to you. 
in in that way I find languages unbelievably intriguing. It also it also gives you a very helpless feeling when you're in a country and you don't know the language, you cannot express yourself. You can't even find a way. So language yeah. has has an unbelievable impact on you. Yeah, I really realized that when I came to uh, Liège because I didn't speak any French. Uh-huh. And I was like, what? And they don't speak English. <laughs> yeah, and I really got a good perspective how it is to be an Im- immigrant in a country because I never felt that before because I speak German, I speak English. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, you can always get ar- yeah. around, but there is like no go. And you have to do a lot of complicated uh, maneuvers to yes. live there and go to a lot of uh, institutions and no one speaks English. So you're like, oh my God, it's really a good experience. Yeah. Especially if you think that it's easy to become an immigrant. like Because a lot of Swedish people can say, yeah, yeah, people come here to Sweden because it's the paradise. And it's like, right. it's not the paradise. No. It's super cold. It's like dark. Like no one wants to live there, really. It's only reason why Sweden is a very good country is because it's... Um, it's very dark, so no one would live there if it, if it were shit, you know? Mm-hmm. It can't be shit, because if it were shit, no one would live there. Because it's not worth it, but because it's good, we have good school systems and uh, good uh, healthcare and stuff, then people will enjoy the, the shitty months, sort of. But uh, it's not easy, it's really hard, and if they don't believe me, they should try to go to a country where they don't speak your language. Yeah. Because, wow, it's hard. And it's really hard. This was Europe. I yeah. can imagine like if I would go to some other country more far away like China yeah. or Russia or something where I can't even read yeah. uh, where I'm going. Like uh, <laughs> it, it leaves you completely helpless. Yeah. It's like kids once again. It's like, okay, and people cannot uh, understand what you're trying to no. express at all. Very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about your flutes because you have a lot of different flutes. Yes. Well, I have um, four flutes. A piccolo, an alto flute, um, a concert flute, a normal C flute, and a bass flute. I don't have my own country bass flute, but maybe one day. <laughs> yes. And what should you look for when you buy a good flute? Like Your personality. You Some people tell me when they go... They actually, close by here in Ittervoort, there yeah. is a big music shop, Adams, and they have so many flutes. And beforehand they also told me like, oh yeah, you're gonna spend a complete day there trying all the flutes and then go home confused and you don't know what which flute to choose. And I never had that. Like after 30 minutes, like, yep, that one it is. And I think it has to do with personality. The instrument is really is really the vessel where you express your 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 emotions and, and your well what you actually want to say. And we do that in, in, in different ways. And it has to do with aesthetics. And my aesthetics for what a flute or how a flute should sound or what a nice flute sound is, is apparently always been different from what other people think how a flute should sound. And it was very frustrating when I was still at the conservatory. Mm. But because I knew what I didn't want, it becomes really easy to find and to discover what you actually want. Some people, you you can go into the technicalities of like, oh, do you do you, do you like a flute in silver or in gold or in platinum even, and everything gets more and more expensive. But I think you should go for an instrument and the sound of an instrument that really suits your personality. And I'm sure you had it with your cello as well. You yeah. know it when it's there. Well, I'm That's like you, the one. you know? 
uh, 30 minutes I was like trying this super expensive instrument like nah do you have something else and then like yeah I have this cello it's a bit weird cello no <laughs> it has a uh, very small f holes it's called kind of body is a bit uh, yeah shady it looks very weird and all the instruments makes it like oh and I'm like yeah but it's been like this for a long time so apparently it's working and it has a great sound it's like a Wagner cello I have it's like a Wagner tenor or something it's really powerful like a lot of sound it was powerful when I got it but now it's even more powerful because I really like to play with a full body sound with my cello I'm one of those guys who plays too loud as we talked before uh, but I had to learn that I have to, you know, less is more also. And, yeah, and it's kind of So I also learned that, but it's very nice that I also know how to play very loud. Yeah, it's a great instrument and I went in, I bought it and it was it, you know, and everyone was like, you're crazy, did you just go in and just try some shallows and then you just buy one? I was like, yeah. Yeah. I did the same with my bow. I was like five minutes, like, okay, good one, take this. And everyone thinks I'm crazy and they are like, you're spending years. Like I have friends, they spend like two years finding a shallow. And oh, yeah. I'm like, well, nope. I want this one, uh, yes please, yeah, and it works, same. and because it doesn't have a, a fancy name inside of it, I got it to a very good price, and my friends are spending and paying off cello debts for like the half of their life, and I was just lucky, Yeah. and no one complained about it so far, and I feel that it's uh, fulfilling my needs, so exactly, I was yeah. lucky, so it's all opportunity, luck, and knowing what you want. Yeah, yeah. And maybe not listening too much to what other people say. No. Because maybe it's better to uh, follow your own heart. And yeah, that. and your own ears. I never I never take flutists with me when, I, when I'm trying new flutes. Yeah. No, no, that doesn't help. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, I, I like to see it, like have this romantic vision, you know, like when you choose the wand in Harry Potter. Oh yeah, the wand, wand has, yeah. Like, it's a little bit like that. But it you know? is exactly <laughs> like that. I had this flute in my hands and I was like, yep, that's it. Yeah. And then I looked at the price. No, nope, <laughs> that's not, but I still got it. Yeah. <laughs> I sold some furniture Car, and things like Car, that. And <laughs> yeah. Food, and you have no. a shitty situation because it always gets uh, less expensive with the years. At least my yeah. shallow gets more expensive, so it's yeah, a good investment. Yeah, that's not the case. Yeah, although, although it's made with, with um, some very expensive uh, stuff and materials. Mm. It's a golden flute. And yeah, I took an, another head joint with it. I'm, I didn't take the original head joint. Mm. Because what you have with gold, it uh, makes the sound a little bit more diffuse. And for me, that's good because I have a very focused and centered mm -hmm. embouchure. And with silver, it was just too hard. Yeah. So gold is good for me. But then it was too diffuse to actually research more into the whistle sounds. Then you need to really cut the air on the edge of the, of the mouth hole. So I chose a head joint with a, a platin, the inside is platin, but also there is a little platin um, riser on the, yeah. on the mouth hole and it's just sharper and it helps for those specific techniques. And yeah. uh, I didn't find anyone who really likes my flute when they play on it, but hey, I like it. <laughs> Good for you. It works for me. For me. <laughs> I also like met a lot of instrument makers because I was in a festival called Rutusheim Cello Academy and then all the instruments not all of them, of course, but a lot of them were there. And I tried like cellos with five strings and stuff, and that's cool. And especially because I play also jazz, then it's like 
really interesting yeah. because you can get this kind of deep sound but no one really managed to make a five string shallow where you can actually use all the strings because uh, the problem is the stable because then yeah it gets too narrow the strings and you cannot do a lot of stuff that you can do if you only have four strings so it's a bit complicated and and we told the instrument makers like okay this is the problems you have yeah. to fix it somehow and then they were like okay we will try so it's also nice when you can talk with instrument yes. builders yeah. and ask for things. If you have something that you need, ask for it yeah. because they have to feed the market also. And they also have to develop. Yeah, there is the special system, the Kingma system on flutes, and that's with a quarter tone system. So you yeah. have additional keys. And it, yeah, it's really, really helpful when you have to play um, very difficult pieces with a lot of quarter tones. But for me, I feel that, that then I need to compromise on the sound. And that is something that I don't want to give up. Yeah. I learned that I'm apparently very particular about my sound and then I'm willing to practice more or get really uncomfortable with weird fingerings. Once that system is really combined with the with the same sound, I, I think I would think about buying a flute like that. But for now, no, it's also compromising and, and, and sound, sound is, is, is you. It's really you. There is no one who has the same sound as you. And I find that so specific and particular that I could never, never compromise on that. No, but they shouldn't be compromised. No, they, they should just, you know, make better flutes <laughs> at the end. Better flutes for the people, please. Even more expensive, unfortunately, yeah. it's an expensive yeah, instrument. Yeah, it's very expensive, I guess it's because there's not... I don't know why it's so expensive, because they I can, know. I guess. Because yeah. they can. I, I think so because expensive. it's the market, yeah. yeah. I, I don't see a reason why it should be that expensive. I know there is very small and detailed technique in it, but yeah. then still, all the flutes actually are quite expensive for what they are or for what you use it. Mm. Like a bass flute is the, is the least expensive, mm. but you don't all... Well, I use it a lot, uh, but it's not to play uh, yeah. nice melodies, it's just to do weird stuff. Yeah, but maybe it's because, like, I mean, a cello costs a lot because of... Um, it takes like one year to make one cello, yeah. sort of, so I can understand the working hours you put in it and uh, the materials are not... Yeah, you know, you have to go out and find a tree yeah. that's suitable and shit. <laughs> so it's like a really, and then the tree has to grow there for 200 years or something before you shut it down. But I will actually go and interview some makers. I'm thinking, that would be interesting. Because I really think that we would like to have some more information because it's such a secret world. And we <laughs> never really know what to do. And a lot of people have problems with cracks in cellos. And, yeah. Oh, my flute. Now something with this uh, screw here is not working and we we are like totally handicapped. So Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm very lucky that I have a really good, um, I call him my flute doctor, yeah. and it's my repairing guy. So if any flutist wonder where to go, it's Frans Philippens at Adams. He's really good. Yeah. And then, for example, um, you have at the right hand, you have two uh, trill keys. And in, in classical music, you use it occasionally for a normal trill. But in contemporary music, you need to do very quick and weird stuff with it. And in the normal way, they are too tight, so I need them more loosely. Yeah. But when they um, lose it too much, 
the intonation of the low octave can be disturbed. But he really took the time of really finding like, okay, how far can I go and what will be suitable for you? And he listened to what was what was necessary for me in, in, in my career and he adapted towards it. And I think that's fantastic when you find someone yeah. that is taking care of the flute, but is also very open-minded to what is, what, what is it where you really need. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you, Franz. Yes, go France. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I'm going to round up a little bit now because I've been torturing you for a long time. <laughs> but it's really good. I got so much good tips from you. I'm, I'm like, oh my God, I have to listen to it again. <laughs> because now I'm like, okay, I have to remember everything. So much good stuff. Uh, so really thank you for that. So I want to know when can I read your book? First question. Yes, my book will be launched on December 17th. Um, it's a perfect Christmas gift. For yes, all. exactly. That is how I'm going to promote it. Yeah. Put some weird contemporary tricks and tips under the Christmas tree. Yeah. It will be available online as well. You can order it as an ebook or oh, as yeah, um, nice. a paperback. And um, it is through so ASP. Where can we order it? Yeah, oh, it's ASP, ASP editions um, and, and the section of University Press Antwerp. Yeah. And they told me they will put it on Amazon and bull.com as well. So yeah. it should be easy access. <laughs> Best shopping. And uh, when can we listen to you? The first thing that is coming up is now the Festival of Creasi, of mm-hmm. course, where you can also uh, hear a bunch of other researchers experiment. And then I will go to London. Oh. Um, I will also... Uh, teach at Trinity Leban a course for the collab week it's the yeah project week the interdisciplinary week there and together with composition professor Sam Hayden we will give a workshop on collaboration between performers and composers so the flute students and composer students uh, will get together in a room and we will help them developing new pieces, yeah. new techniques, new everything. And I hope some really nice collaborations come and out. You also have it's a summer course, huh? Yeah, that is every two years. Yeah. It's part of the Darmstadt Festival. I still need to talk to the director for next time, actually. So good yeah. that you remind me. <laughs> yeah. Last time I organized No Medici. Mm. And that is, I find it actually important to do it. It's um, giving an opportunity to young composers who don't have an established name yet. The Darmstadt Festival is the most important festival for contemporary music. And when your music is played there, yeah. a lot of people hear it. Um, yeah. because everyone is there at the same time. But for young composers, it's not always easy. So I uh, made a call for applications. And what is really good to know it's very hard for female composers to get programmed. And when festivals organize an application, mostly men apply as well. But yeah. with this application, I have three times more female applicants than male applicants. Yeah. So I was really happy. And I chose five composers and we work together in public all the time in workshops. And I had invited some of my friends um, who were visiting and are already established in their career to give them some tips as well. Yeah. Everyone could come in and they did. It was really amazing young people coming in mm-hmm. and everyone just talking to each other like wait I should you know what I would do that if I were you or someone else was saying like this is interesting but yeah if you consider this thing and it became something peer-to-peer and I find that really important because it's dominated still by rich old white male yeah 
male man. That is, <laughs> that's double <laughs> white man. Yeah. Um, and at Darmstadt especially, there was a foundation that was only supporting young white men. Yeah. I had a lot of trouble with them. Um, he was the the head of that foundation, ended up uh, stalking me online, trash talking. Oh. When I went to New York, for example, for teaching a class, he yeah. would call, well, he would write an email to, to the professor of that class saying like, oh, she's birthless and you should cancel it and things like that. Oh my God. Um, I was really affected by it for two years and then I said, nope, enough. And that's why I did the No Medici at that festival, because he was always paying people and implementing his guys yeah. into the scene mm. and that should stop. And it was really, really heartwarming. It was a really nice, nice collaboration. And um, I want to continue doing that because I think it's really important that yeah. we develop music peer to peer and um, from ourselves as yeah. humans and not by money. A real hashtag me too on that guy. Like, oh, I did. You, like, I did. <laughs> Openly with his name. <laughs> yeah, but like, how can. Oh, I, I really like surprised that people do that. How can you and like how can you have so little things to do in your life? Exactly, you have time yeah. to do that. Yeah. You know? I wouldn't. I have hardly time to follow my friends. How can he have time to follow someone he hates? Well, he's like, ninety oh. years old by okay. now. Okay. So how does he even know it works? <laughs> I was surprised by that. I got I got like anonymous emails that were not that anonymous mm. because I tracked down the IP address, mm. but still for a ninety-year-old dude. To yeah. invest, actually, <laughs> you should admire that. <laughs> yeah, it's like you have such a passion. Yeah, unfortunately, it was not the right it. energy, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, wow. <laughs> but I think we made up for it with this new Medici yeah. project. It's a good, great way of uh, fighting it. Yes, yes, um, giving opportunities to young people from all of all over the world and giving them helping them, giving them tips and, and tricks and actual tools. Yeah. And in that light, I actually also wrote the book. So that's the yeah. No Medici project, but in written form. Yeah. So um, we are going to look forward to reading your book and the last three questions, because I have them. I, I know you already like answered most of them. But if you have an advice to give uh, to someone listening to modern music the first time, what would you say? Don't listen to, to contemporary music, but watch contemporary music. Don't listen to SoundCloud or a CD, but go to YouTube and find some good quality videos and look to the performance. Yeah. yeah, there are specially made videos, but there are also just captations of concerts. Contemporary music has a strong visual element. So really go to YouTube and watch it, not only listen to it. That's a great idea. And uh, people playing it for the first time, we already did a little bit, but... Yes, the preparation, of course. And then develop yourself and trust yourself as, as a person. Don't be afraid of limits or don't think that you have to play in a certain structure that is very rigid. You can actually be very creative and you can be yourself. Um, so embrace your own creativity in it. And also don't be afraid of extremities and the element of surprise. There are very rarely smooth transitions in contemporary music. So whenever you see dynamics or rhythmical values, everything is correct and there is no preparation or anticipation in it. When you have suddenly, you see it coming, that very beautiful pianissimo, mm. Don't prepare it, don't call your audience saying mm. like, hey, I'm going to do something. No, leave it for that element of surprise. Yeah, that's a, I love the element of the surprise. And uh, for a person who wants to become awesome in modern music, 
<laughs> buy my book. <laughs> well, yes, I should say that. <clears throat> buy my book. No, um, find find your collaborators. I would have not written that book, or I would have not gained some respect by now with the music that I'm playing if it was not written by my friends or if I was not inspired by friends or or great teachers. This book, I also write it in the book in the acknowledgements and or, or in the introduction. It is really a tribute to all the fantastic people that I met in the last 10 years. So it's not a reflection of a research project of two years. It's more a reflection of the last 10 years. And it's dedicated to people. Mm. People are more important than actual music. It's the people that make that music. So I believe that you cannot become awesome when you're doing it alone. You can only become awesome when you find your true collaborators, people that inspire each other. It's a collective. It's not an individual path. Okay, so team up. Yes, team up. Yeah, team up. Good. Thank you so much for joining. You're welcome. And I'm really looking forward to a future project. If so much happened till now, I can only imagine what will happen. So. Oh, let's hope, let's hope. <laughs> uh, where can we follow you? Um, I have a website. Yeah. A um, nice one. Is uh, in a... Yes, it's www.innevanhoeveren.com. Yeah. Yes. It's, a, it's actually a nice website and I'm saying that because it's also not developed by me but it's an awesome friend yeah. who made it. Um, it's, the photos are also by uh, Tina Tallon. She mm, yeah. is a composer. She's teaching in Boston electronic composition but she's one of the greatest art documentation people that are out there. Um, she makes the best videos, the best photos of contemporary musicians. So thank you Tina for that, <laughs> for yeah. thinking of my publicity. And I would say go to Facebook and look for Creasi Artistic Research Group and then you're also updated on what is happening in the artistic research contemporary scene. Yeah, that's great. We will do that. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a really good trip home. Thank you. <laughs> Mom.